Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. It's me, Trevor Game. It's he, Matt Feuerstein. He's back again. And Matt, I don't know if I mentioned this on the last show, but I think last month was our three-year anniversary doing this show. Yeah, it's been the um, it's been the greatest time of my life. Being, Only being, good things have happened in the last yeah, three years. Yeah, being partnered with you has just been has just made the world a better place. And as you can see, the world is a wonderful, wonderful place right now. Everything's everything's going great. So um, thank you. I, I, I like everything that's happening right now in the world. I I hold you completely responsible for it. So thank you. Definitely. Well, I feel the same about you because honestly, <laughs> like, I mean, I've had plenty of happy moments too. But honestly, like. The last three years since I started doing this show have been, for reasons completely unrelated to the show, the worst three years of my entire life. And it's all, and it's all, and it's all my fault. <laughs> so I don't know if we started this podcast on like an old abandoned Indian burial ground or something, but <laughs> it has just been one catastrophe, personal and otherwise, after another. But honestly, my life's fine right now, other than the incredible pandemic that is forcing us all stay at home and lose jobs and be worried about each other and ourselves but as far as that i mean i'm i guess i'm doing as well as could be i hope you're uh, hope all of you out there are as well and the the, I, the um the one silver lining is that we are around to do this much more quickly than usual yes in case you haven't and definitely when i tweeted today that we were going to be recording i got multiple people saying, oh, finally a silver line to the pandemic, which was both incredibly satisfying to hear and also way too much pressure. <laughs> like, oh boy, I get to we get to justify a pandemic, man. We've gotta we've gotta be the whipped cream and cherry on top of this dog feces Sunday that is the last month of world affairs. Yeah, I mean, uh I guess I guess it's flattering that we're changing people's changing people's lives for the better. Whoever these people are, I don't know, but good luck to them. Some other things that are changing people's lives for the better podcast-wise are the other great shows on the podcast network we're on, the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Net- podcast network easy enough for me to say and i always plug new shows that i've just debuted on the network and there's a new one from our mutual friend matt stephen graham has who's next which is a show devoted just to watching and and talking about every goldberg match from the beginning almost like a ring of honor podcast because truly we have invented doing things from the beginning so obviously anyone that does that going forward ripping us off but no um it's going to be two episodes a week. It's a shorter podcast, obviously, much like Goldberg Matches, which I think is refreshing. And I got permission to reveal that it's there's new, there's episodes that are already out, but um, I will uh, be a guest on that show. I recorded four episodes with Steven in the last week. And wow. Those won't be coming out. It'll probably be a week or two at least before those come out, but you should start listening now. And I had a great time. So, yeah, I am on yet another podcast. Wow. Well, I can't wait for that because Stephen always has great ideas for podcasts, very creative, and I I just can't get enough of hearing your voice, Trevor, so oh, I cannot wait. That makes one of us. Oh, and <laughs> also, Matt, I, I want to show everyone how lazy I am. So 
I when I was uh, DMing Stephen today to ask permission, could I, could I you know, because some podcasts they don't want to spoil guests or stuff before the podcast drops. So I said, can I bring up that you know I'm going to be on the show in the future? And he said yes. And then he said, kind of half jokingly but half seriously, uh, who you know like could do you know Joe Gagne's number? Haha. <laughs> and I said, oh you know I'll um. I'll put in a good word with Joe because I have to talk to him soon to uh, ask him to be on the next episode through the years, except I realized the next episode is not in Boston. That's two episodes from now. So Matt, here, here's how lazy I am and how much I don't want to talk to Joe. I am now not going to DM him. I'm just going to say, Joe, if you're listening and want to do who's next, it was a fun podcast. I enjoyed get in touch with Steven. That's how lazy I am. Well, you're also, you're also putting, you're also putting him on the spot publicly. Joe, you better fucking do that show. Incredible pressure. And if you want to listen to us with, with Joe Gagne, including, you know, um, you know, he's done lots of episodes of this show, but the show we talked about on the last episode through the years, the five star match game, WrestleMania trivia edition has dropped. So if you want to listen to that, that's on the voices of wrestling podcast network and meet matt and me and uh justin shapiro and it was a great show and all i can say is i will not give away the winner but what i can promise is that at least one of the two of us loses so that doesn't spoil anything because it's a three-person show with only one winner so if you have a desire to see a hear at least one of us lose something i guarantee at least one if not both of us lose that show yeah it's possible that um you know, we're all losers in the end. So, <laughs> but you should, again, you, you, should you should check out check out who loses. Tune in to find out who loses. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah. In case you haven't noticed, the podcasts coming a lot more frequently thanks to the pandemic. But uh, that brings us to this. So yeah, a very short turnaround by modern standards for us. But we are back to review Death Before Dishonor Two Part Two, which took place the day after the very last show it took place july 24th 2004 at the frontier field house in chicago ridge illinois in front of a reported crowd of 525 people so uh matt i've kind of talked a couple details about this in the last couple shows because these three shows were kind of tied together in ring of honors hopes for a certain attendance figure but i've saved a bunch of observer stories from the previous few weeks worth of issues around this time just for this so we can kind of talk about all now so i'll just read a few quotes from various observers in the last few weeks the first one says the major test for ring of honor comes next month for shows july 17th in elizabeth new jersey july 23rd in wauwatosa wisconsin outside milwaukee and july 24th in chicago ridge illinois gabe sapolsky was hopeful of doing a combined three thousand paid on those three shows then we go to another observer issue. Advances for this coming weekend in the Chicago and Milwaukee areas were below what they were hoping for. So the idea of drawing 3,000 fans between Elizabeth and the other two shows doesn't look like it'll happen. And very much that came to fruition because we'll jump to – oh, wait. First, still another quote here. Ray Vonner is looking at doing a midsummer peak of angles, hoping to draw a total of 3,000 fans at the three shows. And then we get to the next observer – Ring of Honor had what has to be a disappointing weekend at the gate, but did two very well-received shows. The July 24th show in Chicago Ridge, Illinois, drew about 525 fans, down from the 800 they did on the debut show in the market. From the company's standpoint, they are blaming the smaller crowds on lack of promotion 
because of the business transition and the website being down for two weeks. But since the site was back up, the DVD sales, because they are more up-to-date with the shows than ever before, are doing better than ever. They were hoping for 3000 paid out of the last two weeks of shows, and the number ended up being less than 1700 And finally, we go to The Torch. Wade Keller wrote, Ring of Honor officials are not sure what to make of the lower attendance figures from the events in Wisconsin and Chicago last weekend. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch that he feels Ring of Honor's split from RF Video distracted them from properly promoting both events last weekend. We definitely fell short on the promoting end of things, and we have no one to blame but ourselves, he tells The Torch. Our website was down for a couple of weeks right before the show, and our attention was focused on starting the new Ring of Honor rather than promoting these shows. Ring of Honor will get a better idea of the numbers they can expect in the Midwest when Ring of Honor returns in October for another double-shot weekend in Dayton, Ohio and Chicago Ridge, Illinois, as they will now be able to focus on promoting both events. So, uh, Matt, that's a, you know, they were hoping for 3000 only getting 1700 uh, The thing that this jogged my memory, I do not remember this. Uh, um, I didn't know, for a company at this time, you have to remember Ring of Honor lived and died on just selling the DVDs and they were split from RF video. The idea that their website was down for two weeks, that's like a pretty major blow. Yeah. I didn't remember that at all. And I mean, I don't know. I, I'd like to see confirmed. Like, was it fully down that entire time? Um, did you ever, did you get a chance to look into that? No, I, I didn't. Unfortunately, and honestly, again, I do not remember. I, I do not remember this, but Obviously, that's something they were using as one of the reasons why maybe this double shot weekend did not draw as well. But yeah, I mean, for a company where I have to imagine a lot of the tickets are bought online, all the DVDs and yeah. were bought online. Like the tickets are either going to be bought online or they're going to be bought like in person at the previous show, right? Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I that's, yeah, that's a that's terrible timing. <laughs> But I imagine, I guess, they probably, I guess, this. I mean, this was right around the time they really finally had the real, real means, real official split from Rob Feinstein. So I guess that necessitated them having to do a whole new website from scratch, I guess, which is something else. But uh, what were the dates of these shows? July 17th and 18th? July 17th, I believe, was the de- – uh, Ring of Honor Reborn, the final stage. So this is tw- twenty. This, this is, is the twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it does. the The Wayback Machine does have snapshots from those dates, um, like around then, and it's you know has a preview of Reborn completion, July sixteenth, Newswire. So it doesn't sound like they were one hundred percent down. Maybe just not working as well. All we know is that uh, Chicago would continue to be a good market for Ring of Honor going forward and that they wouldn't ever come back to Wisconsin. So, But obviously, I think the big difference there is one, Chicago is just a better market. But two, uh, even though 525 is drastically lower than the 800 they drew the first time, that's still over 500 was generally what I think Ring of Honor was aiming for at this point. Yeah, ROH did eventually go back to Milwaukee, but it was in like a totally different era, you know, long after it was like, you know, it was more like the Sinclair era when it was finally back there. Yeah, I have to confess, I know not, my my knowledge of the Sinclair era is, got more holes in it than Swiss cheese. Oh yeah, yeah, me me too, for sure. I just, I just, I just know I've like seen them having shows in Milwaukee, but like, I don't know what was on those shows or anything like that. Yeah. So um, 
that brings us to the first match on the show, Death Before Dishonor, two part two, the double deuce. Um, much, I guess we should mention, much like the last show, Gabe's continuing his idea for these Death Before Dishonor shows that on these shows, there is no backstage segments, no interviews, everything is done in the ring. So it's mostly just matches on these shows. And so we go right to the opening match on this DVD, and that would be Rocky Romero with Homicide, Julius Smokes and Low Key at his side, defeated Chad Collier via submission in 11 minutes, 31 seconds using the cross arm breaker. Matt, um, this match was, I remember at the time was remembered, was, was hailed as a real, uh, like hidden gem kind of like, wow, that's like a really surprisingly good match. How did you think it kind of held up given, you know, cause I remember that's what they, people thought of it at the time, but how does it look, how's it, you know, 15, 16 years now difference? Uh, um, I would say, uh, it really got the crowd going. Like uh, it's it had some of the best responses of the night, which makes sense for an opener. But they did a really good job of you know playing to what this crowd wanted to see. So in that sense, it was really good. Um, I also liked you know I really liked for a change that they just got right into the action. You know it's nice to see like the DVD opens with somebody entering for a match. You know you just don't get that very often in ROH. So up, up until this point, right? Um, as far as the match itself. Um, I thought that it was good. I did not think it was special good, but I thought they did a good job. The one, the negative I would say is that I didn't think there was a ton of story to the match. I thought that Collier was like really just like feeling it just in terms of like personality. He was really hamming it up. You know, he was like, you know, yelling and jawing with the, with, with the Rottweilers and the ref and he was, his moves and stuff looked really good. I thought all the action was really good and it was action packed. You know, they were, they were really going back and forth, you know, um, um, they, like Romero did some heel stuff by kicking Chad Collier instead of cleanly breaking, but then later he cleanly broke. So I guess he was getting more into like the wrestling aspect. They did this wacky roll up series where then Rocky was flung out of the ring. At one point, Collier hit this really, really good drop kick and then a brain buster right after that got two. He actually dominated for a while. Collier did. And um, and the crowd really liked it when they were like trading their uh, their finishers, the arm bar and the uh, the arm breaker and the uh, clover leaf. Um, but then uh, you know finally Ra- uh, Romero did this like modified Rana into the arm bar and got the tap out. Um, I thought it was you know really good action. I didn't think it rose to any sort of special level because I didn't think there was much more to it than that. Um, I one uh, commentary highlight because the whole Rottweiler crew was at ringside. Gabe said. I started by saying, what the Rottweilers did last night was absolutely disgusting. And I was like, oh yeah, they, they broke Alice in Danger's neck with the, with the uh, cop killer. But no, he just said they disrespected the belt by spitting on it. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so yeah, that's really disgusting, I guess. But yeah, that's what I would say about the match. It was a good match. I, I, did not, I do not think looking at it with 2020 eyes, it would be something that I'll remember for very long. I I have a feeling like if the Rottweilers had done like a uh, an angle where they had beaten down Alice in Danger to the point that she was bleeding and then the blood got on the Ring of Honor title, Gabe would be like, oh my god, can you believe what's going on? There's a drop of blood on the Ring of Honor title. Like, how dare they? And he wouldn't mention yeah. Alice in Danger at the, all. But- they're, they're disrespecting the business. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna, They're going to have heat in the locker room now. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you about this match where I thought this was a good match, like a very enjoyable, you know, if I did put a star rating on, I'm getting less worried about putting star ratings on it. Not that I have to put them on everything, but like three and a quarter, 
star, three and a half star ish match. Like it, it's a fun match, but giving a little spoiler of my thoughts on the rest of the show, I think there are a lot of matches on this show that are this good. So in that sense, maybe not quite as good as my memory because it was like, there's a lot of matches on the show that reach that this level in my opinion. But then, then again, maybe why people thought this is a hidden gem is because Chad Collier, I think a lot, I think he's one of the more underrated guys of this era. Rocky Romero wasn't really that well known to some fans yet. So maybe just the fact that like, when Samoa Joe and Colt Cabana or, some, or somebody wrestles, you go, oh, I expect that to be a good match. But for a lot of fans, maybe at this time, they were like, Rocky Romero and Chad Collier, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect those guys to have a match like this. But exactly what you said, I, I thought they, like, always kept things moving. It was a really good mix of a little bit of everything in terms of, you know, everything they can do. And especially, like, Chad Collier here, I think, shows off, like, again, he's not just a submission guy where, like you said really showing off he has some really good charisma like um there even at the start of the match there's a moment where right but i think before the match starts he won't stop clapping and then he goes to shake romero's hand but he but romero refuses and i think you can hear collier say something like come on i wiped my ass but i washed my hand like it's just such a chad collier kind of thing yeah he's he gets he gets underrated in terms of his personality for sure yeah and um I think even even his offense, like some people just looked at him and go, oh, he's like a Dean Malenko type. And yes, he was known for Matt wrestling, but here he does a flying cross body. He does just a beautiful um, flying leg lariat. And like really on the last show, I talked about how he was underrated, but I thought that last show was a rare off night for him. Here, it's like he completely redeems himself. Everything he does looks really on point. Um, Rocky Romero looks good, too. Uh, um, you know, there's not much to say about his performance. It's just a good standard performance. Uh, there and and some in the difference from what we would see a lot on this night. There's a lot of interference on the show. Even though the Rottweilers were at ringside, they did not interfere in this match. So it's a rare match where a stable doesn't actually interfere. And I guess maybe to put Rocky over a little bit more, he gets the completely clean when he doesn't completely dominant. And yeah, like you also said, um, the crowd being really into it, I was surprised how like late in the match when Chad Collier gets the Texas Cloverleaf on, the crowd really cheers. And they give this match like an extended round of applause after the match. So, you know, again, maybe for the time, maybe it's weird because again, I don't think this match was that much better than a lot of matches on the show, but it definitely seemed like I remember at the time on the message boards, people were really raving about this match and the crowd was really into it. So maybe there's something on rewatch that I'm seeing that I, I'm I'm not sure why it's not quite as good as I remember, but still. Well, it makes sense. There are just some matches that play better at their time than they do later, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that brings us to match two. Alex Shelley, who came to the ring with Jack Evans and Roderick Strong, but not Austin Aries because he was preparing for his match. Shelley defeated Jimmy Jacobs via submission in 1428 with the Border City stretch. And I would say this is another good good match. Like, I would say I would put this, like, a little bit above the last match, another, like, kind of three-and-a-half-star match. And one thing I liked watching this match is... Shelley and Jacobs were at this point in their careers, like a lot of indie wrestlers throughout history, where they kind of come up in the same scene and they get tied together, where they drive together to the shows. I don't know if they drove together on this show, but like 
a lot of times they'll kind of come as a package deal. Like we're, if you get one of us, both of us will come together and we'll, and oftentimes they'll be asked to work together. So these guys have wrestled each other a ton in a whole bunch of promotions. And a lot of times when two guys are kind of paired together like that, I find their matches look a little rehearsed because they just know each other so well. And one thing I liked about this match was it didn't feel, it felt organic, even though I'm sure these guys, you know, knew each other very well. In fact, you can actually see them. Like if anything, there's a couple of months where it's very clear. You can see them calling spots to each other in the match. But I, I, even then I appreciate like, Oh, they're really doing a lot of this on the fly and they're not just going through like, here's the 18 things we've really honed to like a mirror shine from working each other so often. And yeah, another match where it's just good action, maybe not the hugest, like a really in-depth story, but much like the last show, I've really am enjoying just like appreciating just how good Jimmy Jacobs was as a babyface. There's just, he's one of those guys where his stature and his size and even just the, his appearance, like there's something naturally sympathetic about him. And I feel it's kind of a, not that I didn't like later periods of Jimmy Jacobs cause I did, but I feel like he was kind of born to play the naturally sympathetic kind of literally baby faced baby face. And he, he, he's one of those guys where just by nature of just how he wrestles and how he looks like even a guy like Alex Shelley, who's just an average sized wrestler. If that comes off as more brutal and stronger, you know, than he would probably against almost any other opponent. And I thought both guys looked good here, but I thought Jacobs just had so many cool little, like I thought Shelly was good, but in the way we've come to know Shelly is good where I felt like, um, Jake was pulled out so many cool little offensive touches. Like he, uh, he did f- a spot where he did four or five consecutive cross arm neck breakers onto his knee. And I especially love after he did them all in a row, he like sold his own knee. Like he had hurt himself doing them, which I thought was kind of a neat touch. Uh, he does this really cool bulldog where he basically leapfrogs over Shelly to get into it. And he even does some goofier comedy stuff that the crowd likes. Like he does a tomahawk shot from the top rope wh- before he shouts, I have the power. Like He-Man or whatever. I think it's He-Man. I wasn't a big He-Man. I was more fan. I was more of a Transformers kid. But f- to me, Matt, the highlight of this match. Well, also, it's it's from the song, the Transformers. Uh, you have the touch. You have the power. So it might oh, just yeah. be from that. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Crap. Huh. Uh, maybe I wasn't as big a Transformers fan. I, I mean, uh, I get, but I but He-Man does say it too, for the record. Cartoons in the eighties. They were all about who had the power. They have the power. Yeah. But uh, my favorite spot on the entire show, I just love this spot. Jimmy Jacobs in this match pulls out what might be the greatest senton I have ever seen, where he lands fully on on Alex Shelley and does not touch the mat at all. Like he just – the way I I compared it, I tweeted a a clip of this. It's basically the Kyrie Sane insane elbow of sentons where he just – all his weight comes down. It just look. he looks like he's just putting everything into it. And usually when you see a senton, I guess the smart way to do it is you land mostly on the mat. You kind of hit with your shoulders or upper back. So the other guy doesn't really take much of it. And here Jacobs just goes straight down totally on Shelly. It just looks amazing. And yeah, the match itself. Good. Really a good, enjoyable match. I would say my only real, um, criticism of it 
is I felt like the ending was a little abrupt because right. It's, it's like probably maybe a less than a minute after that huge senton Shelly's getting the win. He just grabs the border city stretch, like a few sequel little moments later and he just grabs it and it's over. And I felt like it was maybe a little abrupt going from Jacobs hitting moves that big to Shelly, just kind of being like, okay, it's time for me to win. But other than that, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Um, Matt, what did you think? I enjoyed it. I think maybe slightly less than you, but not by much. I, I thought, you know, Jacob's comeback was the was the highlight for sure. Um, you know, I think Shelley is so solid. So I don't want to say that like Jacobs was like the star of the match because like he was able to be the star because Shelley was so good and solid for the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like doing the selling and playing the heel. But Jacobs was the personality that got over the most here. Um, you know, he started out with his stalling, with his, uh, you know, doing like almost like the rhythmic stomping for the husses and the crowd was chanting for it. Um, but, you know, and then it was, you know, it was a little bit slow. Um, what, at one point early, um, Nolte was like, I've never seen so much hype for guys who have yet to win a title. And it's like, eh, I don't know. I probably have. Uh, <laughs> um, like um, Brock Lesnar got a lot of hype uh, for a while before he won the title. Thing he was the next big thing, I believe. Um, sp- I would argue Tatanka got more hype. Yeah, for sure. For Tatanka sure. got a lot of push. <laughs> but um, but no, but so the match was slow at first. But you know what? But you know it was it was building and building. And Jacobs was going for a lot of covers. I like that touch. It showed that he really wanted to beat Shelley. And I think you're right. I don't think this was like the standard Shelley Jacobs match that they knew. You know, like the back of their hand. It seemed like they worked this match. You know, they 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 called it in the ring for a lot of it. Um, see what they were. This might have been a different kind of match than they normally did together, and I appreciated that. But this is the second night in a row that Jimmy's comeback was just so good, and his selling was so good. And you're right that Senton got the big pop of the night. Um, I also liked, um, you know, Shelley's, um, you know, going after Shelley's neck, dropping the knee, reversing the shell shock into the near fall. You know, I like the um, Shelly blocking the Contra code into that, like, cross-legged brain buster. I'm not totally sure what crossing a guy's leg does to make a brain buster more devastating, but <laughs> it certainly made it look different, and that's cool. You know what? It's wrestling. What the fuck? Um, but I, uh, but no, I thought it was, a, it was a very good match. I would put it pretty close to on par with the previous match, but I know that I've seen these two have even better matches. So maybe that's what I was comparing it to. That's why I maybe didn't like it quite as much as you. But I thought it was a, a really, you know, solidly good match. Yeah, the way I would put it maybe is this isn't the kind of perform- – this isn't the match that's on the level that would put these guys like on the map. But it would put them in like the Atlas, I guess. <laughs> or what's what's less than a map? Like it put it on the, the drawing of the neighborhood you'd give to like – a relative that's coming to visit you for the first time and they don't know where you live. I, I don't know. Yeah, so I mean, I th- or, or let's put it this way. It didn't put them on the map because they were already on the map, but it kept them firmly entrenched in the map. Yes, kept them in the map. That, that's a great yes. way to put it. They were, they were not wiped off the map from this. <laughs> one, one thing I do want to mention is Gabe says on commentary during this match low-key cut a promo after the last match that we're absolutely not going to put on this home release it was absolutely disgusting oh yeah and and, um i tried in vain to find out what this this promo could have been but i don't think any of the i I think i read three different live reports for the show and no one mentioned it although i will say that the live reports i found i think they were all on pw insider there was a couple live reports let me tell you, you look them up for this show they were doozies where like i 
you got to appreciate when anyone takes the trouble to make live reports, but I think at least two of them were like, yeah, I don't remember the finish for this match. I don't remember who won this match. And then there was one guy who says, <laughs> I still don't get Samo- why Samoa Joe is the Ring of Honor champion. And I was like, okay, everyone's entitled to their opinion. But I just was thinking like, at this point in Ring of Honor, like, you're still not sold on Samoa Joe? Like, That's weird. Yeah, it, it was just funny, but no. Yeah, yeah, but you know, but you know what I think. I think that Gabe was just trying to like reference the promo from the week before, and like playing, you know, playing that up. But like, that's what I think. Also, he makes another comment about that stricken from the record promo later, which I think is very funny. But I'll wait to get to that. Yeah, maybe I misheard, or maybe he just kind of missaid something. Maybe he really was just when he says the last show, or no, no, he was he was talking about this show, but I think he was lying, and was I mean maybe I'm wrong, but I I think he was sort of like playing up the controversy that the previous show's promo yeah. had by acting like he always has promos that are cut off the show. Because for those who don't remember, or don't know, just two shows ago that Death, Bef- I mean, uh, Ring of Honor Reborn completion, that was re- Loki really did do a promo where they had to, they didn't cut it out, they actually just muted the audio where he did a line about Rob Feinstein being a boy toucher, quote unquote, and yeah, they actually, that, and again, they didn't cut that out, they just muted it, but um, so yeah, they're definitely playing that. It feels like they're playing that up. Ooh, the you know the controversial aspect. So after the Shelly Jacobs match, match Shelly gets on the mic. He says he and Jimmy have wrestled each other a lot of times, but goddamn if that match wasn't one of the toughest. He then says he's carried Jacobs like a backpack though, and Jimmy has always been a thorn in Shelly's side and in his shadow. Uh, Shelly then says they're going to put Jacobs out of his misery and strong Evans and Shelly then beat down Jacobs until Ricky Steamboat comes out in jeans and a wife beater. I just wrote my notes street steamboat in all capital letters. Uh, Steamboat gets a big fuck him up steamboat chant. Ricky stares down all of generation next, except for Aries who still isn't out there. Uh, Ricky gets on the mic and he says, the only reason generation next is able to get the best of people is because they always outnumber them. Steamboat then says some line to Jack Evans that gets a laugh I couldn't hear. Did you make out what it was? There's a lot of com- um, stuff on the house mic on this night that I could not understand. Yeah, I don't know what he said. Uh, it's unfortunate because it did get a big laugh from the crowd. Um, I think he might have said you're white because there was a you are white chant at, during the next match at Jack Evans. Yeah. Uh, Steamboat then says he's got two guys waiting behind the curtain to even the odds and John Walters and Matt Stryker hit the ring and the bell rings, which brings us to our next match completely impromptu generation next of Jack Evans and Roderick strong defeated John Walters and Matt Stryker in 10 minutes, 40 seconds when strong pinned Walters after hitting a spinal shock. So Matt, another early, uh, Jack Evans, Roderick strong match tag match for us. what do you think about this one? Um, I always, um, I always like these matches with Strong and, Ev- and Evans. Um, I thought the ending was a little bit convoluted, but I thought that this, but I'll get to that, but I thought the match was good. You know, I, I like, you know, they, they were still coming up strong and Evans were with new double teams. Like, um, strong had Evans in a wheelbarrow position and then like flipped him over onto Walters, which I thought was cool. Um, I like the hot start, you know, I like, it felt ECW esque, you know, like a impromptu match. They're going at it hot. That got the crowd going pretty good. Usually when that happens, that's a usually works well with the crowd when they don't overdo it. Uh, another annoying Nolte line. You could see that Nolte is uh, the opposite of growing on me. Um, um, Gabe rhetorically goes, 
does anyone chop harder than Roderick Strong? And Nolte, completely unironically, is like, Samoa Joe. And it's like, oh, what a fucking asshole. Why would you do that? I'm sorry. Like, no, I, you know, Nolte's, a, I'm sure, a good guy. But I just, that was, a, that was annoying. Um, but, um, Evans, you know, he he does like a lot of cool moves. You know, the cartwheel elbow on Walters in the corner, but he flies all the way to the floor. Um, Strong starts going after Walters back with like kicks and the surfboard, and but he doesn't pull him all the way over. He just kind of keeps Walters upright. And then um, Walters comes back with double lung blower to Strong and Evans. And then a hot tag striker and striker uh, have you noticed that striker seems more motivated in these generation next matches than he had in a while um i think so i think maybe it's cuz he just cuz he's kind of wrestling like he's got a like he's angry at them which actually i think that i think matt striker who wrestles like he's a little bit pissed off is better than matt striker who's just doing kind of like a classic technical wrestling match quote unquote i think that's fair um he does a pretty good house of fire sequence until he misses a quebrada and then uh, the Generation X hits the Ode to the Bulldogs move that they debuted at the previous week. The crowd actually chanted, let's go Striker, which, come on, that's a pretty big turnaround from a few weeks earlier. Um, and Steamboat actually chopped strong on the outside, and Walters and Striker hit a Doomsday Rana on Evans, which is, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, um, that's what I wrote. Can't be true. Um, did they do a Doomsday Rana? Uh, that can't be right. Oh, the Doomsday Lung Blower. That's what they did. I knew I yeah, wrote that wrong. Was. Yeah, I was like, there's no way they did that. <laughs> Striker really changing up near the end of his ring. Of yeah. Um, but so, but so Walters got in. Evans as in that same wacky submission as night one, and Striker got strong in the Striker Lock. Shelley distract the, um, distract the ref, so he missed the tap out. Then Steamboat chased Shelley all around the ring, and Shelley runs in and breaks up the Striker Lock. Then Aries attacks Steamboat in the aisle. Then Walter, Walters continues to have Evans in that submission this entire time. That's the part that I thought was convoluted. Strong comes off with a top rope elbow on Walters, and Nolte calls it an elbow-leg drop combination. But I definitely – there was no leg drop. I rewound it. It was just an elbow. I don't know how they, that would – I don't understand. But um, the brawl continued in the aisle, and on and then um, Strong did the uh, – the, um, what did he do? I wrote spinal shot, but I don't know. Spinal what... shot was the finish. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Well, he did. He did that, and um, and that's and then he pinned Walters. Um, but um, while well, Evans stopped Striker, the thing that I thought was convoluted was just that Walters had Evans in this submission hold for like a really, really, really long time while all this other stuff was going on until Strong hit the quote elbow drop leg drop combination that supposedly happened but I did like that Strong won with a move that you don't normally see from him finishing matches that Spinal Shock um, I thought it was an, a good action packed match I just didn't love the finish I think uh, the show is three for three for me so far on like all being right around that three and a half star three and a quarter star range because I thought this was on that level and uh, I it's weird I came away from this match thinking that maybe the best use of Striker and Walter's at this point in their careers might have been as a tag team because I really liked the hot tag they had on the prior show when they were in a six man. And I thought this was like, I agree with you. Like this is the best strikers looked in a while. And, I, and again, I really do think it's just more, it seems like in when they 
in these two tag matches, like both guys have a are wrestling with like a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, maybe just because they know they're supposed to be wrestling like, oh, we're we're pissed off at generation next. Maybe maybe it's that steamboat is there even. They're just trying to impress like a legend that's at ringside. Because I know a lot of the wrestlers talked about how much they loved like being able to talk to Steamboat and get some tips from him and things like that. But I I just thought they that their offense looked really good here. And it's one of those sad things. It's sort of like the Xavier run where it's always sad when you know a guy's kind of he's on his way out of the company and then he starts doing some better performances where you're like, like Matt Stryker's back to being kind of good again. And you know, he's not long for this world, which is kind of a sad part. But I thought what made this match good was it was kind of like just a continuation of the six generation next six man from the last show, except they took away one member off each team where so much of this match was just about showcasing really cool generation next offense and giving them a bunch of the match. Like I thought Roderick Strong, he's showing a little bit more of himself in every match. Like you can even hear Gabe really starting to put over how hard his chops are. Like he's really trying to put over, he's the strong man of the group, no pun intended. And I was going to point it out if you didn't, Matt, that line from Nolte, like I, I think that line where he go, where, where Gabe wonders who chops harder than strong, you know, asking a rhetorical question and Nolte has to come up with a serious answer. I think that perfectly encapsulates Mark Nolte where my biggest complaint with Mark Nolte, he's not the worst commentator ever. No, no, not at all. I mean, we've we come on. We we are do we've done ROH shows. We know that there are way worse commentators than him. Exactly. Yeah. But I think his biggest problem is he points out things that don't have to be pointed out and detract from matches. Like he he will frequently, and I think I've got examples later. He will frequently call attention to things that a better commentator would just not mention. Would go well. I don't need to mention that. And Mark Nolte will be like, "Hey, look at that, everybody!" And it's just like, and, and something like that. Like anyone that's rational would just know that when Gabe says, "Who chops harder than Roderick Strong?" or "Is there anyone who does?" He's saying a rhetorical question. He's trying to put over Roderick Strong. He's trying to give him some identity. And it, it is not a serious question, Mark, that needs you to contemplate and give a serious answer like, uh, actually, actually, uh, Gabe, I think uh, Toshiaki Kawada hit pretty – like, no, Mark, just please – be quiet, please. But also, he's probably like old school. Like he's putting over the champion, and that makes the title mean more. And that's really the most important thing. That's yeah. maybe what he was thinking there. But um, just a lot of really good offense from Strong Evans. Uh, like you mentioned, Jack Evans does that great handspring elbow where like the momentum carry, carries him over the top to the floor, which sounds kind of stupid. But when you watch the way Evans does it, and it, it looks completely like. Oh, that makes sense that he'd fall after doing it like that. Um, there's a great move where Strong has, uh, I think John Walters bent over backwards and he calls Evans in the ring and Evans hits like a drop kick to uh, Walters midsection while he's being bent backwards and he makes good contact with it and it looked really cool. And Strong is just pulling out more of that offense. He's doing like a kind of a proto version of the big sick kick, like the running one foot drop kick, doing the chops, the big delayed vertical suplex. Um, my problems with this match would be 
oh, a couple things. Again, good match, but if I'm going over my problems, there's a sequence where Jack Evans is kind of in control of the match, and some of it looks good, like when Jack Evans does a fisherman buster, I go, okay, I can buy that. But there's moments where he is like throwing forearms, and he does a really ugly-looking gourd buster, where the guy takes the bump totally on his knees, where even commentary points it out, and it's like, you know, there. I don't think Jack Evans lends himself naturally to being kind of like the guy controlling a bigger guy with that kind of offense for a stretch. And like you said, I think the bigger problem in this match though, was the end. You you didn't, you zeroed in on the submission being on for so long. I just thought it was too much stuff going on at once with the brawl on the outside. And I especially didn't like, and this would become a pattern throughout the night. Alex Shelley just runs in the ring in full view of the ref and interferes in the match and the ref does nothing ab- about it. And it, it's, um, I guess I'll talk about more later cause there's a, uh, a, a different spot in a different match that really brings this point home, but definitely a lot of really poorly done interference in ring of honor in this era. And I guess if I have one other little complaint, it's for the second straight, I don't know if it's the second straight match, but we saw, I think at reborn completion, uh, Strong and Evans do the great kind of ode to the Bulldogs, the spot where Evans does the, um, where Strong gets the guy up in like a torture rack and Evans does a moonsault off the guy onto the other opponent. And it's such a great crowd pleasing spot. Both matches they've done it in, in Ring of Honor so far, it gets the biggest pop of the match. And both times it's not the finish. Like to me, that's a very kind of rookie mistake. Like if you win matches, that should be what you win with because that's clearly the coolest thing you've got. But yeah, I don't some, know. I don't know how many matches they won with that move. Only a few, I think. Yeah, it's weird. I I don't know why. Like to me, that's something I would learn. Like after the very first night, like you do that spot and it gets such a huge pop, I would just go to the back and go, "Well, that's what we're ending matches with. Like that's clearly the best thing we we do in terms of just wowing the crowd." But both times, it's just like a middle of the match spot, which is weird. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's about it. So we're three for three and that brings us to the fourth match, a six man mayhem match, which is just one of their kind of single scrambles. It's Trent acid defeated Danny Daniels, delirious, Matt Seidel, Sean Daivari, and the great Kazushi in 845 when he pinned Daivari after hitting his inverted brain buster finisher. Um, this is continuing the, uh, the kind of mini storyline we're on this weekend, um, Trent Asik proclaimed himself king of the multi-man matches. And so he's going to win both of them this weekend and go on to a title shot. Um, for those who don't know, the Greek Kazushi would be Kazushi Miyamoto, who had previously wrestled and he was our all Japan wrestler. He previously wrestled for uh, ring of honor at the big all Japan versus ring of honor final battle 2004 show. And Gabe points this out. And another annoying Mark Nolte thing, I would say about a minute to two minutes after Gabe points this out on commentary, Nolte goes, I wonder why Kazushi's parents were thinking what they were thinking when they named his, gave him the first name. Great. And it was like, Gabe literally said a minute or two before that, you know, he's really Kazushi Miyamoto. He already wrestled in ring of honor at final battle 2003, but whatever. Um, as a match, I thought this was, just your standard kind of short ROH undercard spot fest where 
after a minute or two of a couple guys pairing off, it just goes to everyone running in the ring, doing every crazy spot they can think of. There's a lot of sloppiness, but it's exciting. So it's the typical, you know, above average as a match, I would think, because I think if you go into these matches just expecting a lot of crazy spots and some sloppiness, you're you're always going to be satisfied with these. They, you, they usually don't rise above that level, and they're usually not below that level. I thought everyone got a moment, except I would say, in a weird way, I, I felt like Trent Acid, who won the match, was kind of like the least impressive, not not even least impressive, just he was the least showcased in this match. He spent a lot of the match just brawling on the outside, and maybe that was because they had under nine minutes for six guys, and since Acid knew he was winning, maybe he felt like he could take more of a backseat, but I felt like Delirious got a lot more spotlight in this match. Danny Daniels got a lot more spotlight in this match. Uh, Matt Seidel got to do a couple really cool flying moves like he always does, including a springboard Dragon Rana. Uh, the great Kazushi is basically Kazushi Miyamoto doing the great Muda gimmick, and he just spits missed a couple times, so at least that's memorable. And he also does a thing where there's a spot where he and Daivari are going for some, I think, I guess, a roll-up. And the great Kazushi takes a header into the mat. It just looked. I called it a. I called it a roll up driver. Yeah, it is insane. Yeah, just that's the great way to put. It. Like, imagine if someone was trying to roll you up, or you were trying to roll someone up, and you didn't tuck your head enough, and you just instead like rolled your head like head first into the mat. Just brutal looking, and yeah, I'm sure you you. There, you could name off some of the crazy spots, but just kind of a standard six-man ma'am. Good enough for what it was. Uh, do you disagree or do you have any other thoughts on – The the only thing that I would add that you didn't say is I thought Davari actually was one of the standout performers in the match. Um, he had a lot of big spots. Um, also, Delirious, Gabe keeps talking about how he has a lizard face to get to the point where I'm thinking like, is he in the Illuminati? Do you think he's in the because <laughs> he's a lizard? Um, but um, even Nalty during this match is like, why are you so obsessed with that? Like even Nalty is just fed up with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, one spot I like from Davari is like Acid was going for an Asai moonsault, but Davari just like grabbed him, threw him down to the floor, and just rammed him into the guardrail, which I don't know if I've ever seen before. I thought that was a really cool reversal to like somebody going for an Asai moonsault. Um, I like that Kazushi at the beginning did red mist, and then at the end did green mist. I thought that was kind of fun. I don't know if, if um, you know, I don't know. I just thought that was that was cute. Um, definitely sloppy. Um, at one point, Nolte, I didn't even mind him saying this, was like, I think I've seen more moves missed than I've seen hit. Which is true. Like, not only, like, the botches, but also they just, like, reversed everything. Like, they didn't actually, like, do all their moves. Another thing that I always find enjoyable about these matches is, um, at the beginning when everyone, like, they just, like, it's like a handshake party. Like, you got six people all having to shake five other people's hands. Like, (laughs) it's just, like, so many handshakes. And, um... You know, I feel like, man, the code of honor could just never work anymore yeah, because I was about of to social say, was distancing. Weird seeing that many handshakes in 2020. Yeah, very, very weird. Um, also, another fun part. Oh, another, um, another um, not uh, not sanitary part in the era of coronavirus. Kobashi, uh, I mean, it's Ko- excuse me, Kazushi. Wow, I wrote Kazushi. Um, he does the miss, and then Davari just spits his gum at him. Um, and then Gabe says, 
Do you remember this part? He goes, you're going to see total nonstop action. Uh, ex- excuse me. I-, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. He felt so weird after he said total nonstop action. And to be clear, I think judging from listening to it, like Gabe really didn't mean to make that pun. And it's like he really like catches himself like, like, oh, shit. Yeah. You know, he definitely did not mean to. Um, but I think one of the big standout spots for Davari was doing a double Death Valley driver on Delirious and Seidel. The crowd really loved that spot. I liked it a lot, too. Um, and he went for the double pin, but that's when Acid grabbed him and hit like a reverse vertical suplex, I guess sort of like a curtain call for the pin. Um, action-packed, messy as usual. I would say it was, a fair, you know, like you said, a pretty typical six-man scramble. And I think that's a good point you mentioned about Sean Daivari. I, I should have mentioned that, yeah, I believe when he did that double Death Alley driver, that was one of the standout spots, I think, from the match that the crowd really loved. And I did think in that opening, there, there's a thing in that opening sequence where um, Kazushi does the misspit, and before Daivari does the gum, I like that the great Kazushi's like, I'm going to do every hand gesture possible. So this is what he does. He, at the opening mat, uh, sequence where he stands off with Daivari, he spits mist, he does a throat slash, he does a double thumbs down, and then he does a double middle finger. Like, it's like, he's like, I'm going to do, I, I can't speak in the language of English, I'm going to speak with the language of hand gestures, and he, and he does them all, so I thought... The, the only I, thing that I wish he did the old Italian, like, flip up on the chin kind of thing, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I would have loved it, yeah, if he just added another four, like, he could have just kept him coming, and I would have been happy. But, uh, yeah, so... Not much more to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. The the the, the, uh, the uh, FBI move that they they all did that right. The uh, it, like the little Guido and stuff he used to do, and uh, he used to do like the flip up on the chin. Yeah, yeah. And Tony and, Mama, Tony Mama Luke. Anyway, <laughs> and that brings us to uh, the Ring of Honor Pure Title match. Doug Williams successfully defends the title again. He defeats Austin Aries via submission in 14 minutes, 13 seconds with an arm bar while uh, Aries is actually in the ropes. He's exhausted his three rope breaks so he can just do it while Aries is in the ropes. Uh, Matt, this is a, a uh, kind of a pretty big match in terms of name value. It's like, well, uh, it was weird watching the show. It's kind of. I guess because Ring of Honor's got so much depth by this point, you're like, wow, like Doug Williams and Austin Aries just in the middle of the card. Okay. Like how, how good did you think this was? I was a little disappointed by it. Like I thought that they, um, you know, they definitely held back, um, which is fine. You know, it was their first meeting. Um, it was a good match. Um, Williams didn't do a lot of the stuff that I like from him. You know, a lot of like the, uh, the wacky chain wrestling stuff. It was a little bit of a slower pace. Aries certainly, was slower. Um, you know, they were really going into the whole rope breaks thing, which, you know, makes sense. They were, it was still early. Like they traded hammer locks early until Aries eventually went to the ropes and Mark Nolte made fun of him for using it on a, using his first rope break on a hammer lock. And Gabe was just like, well, you know, maybe it was habit, which makes sense. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And Aries kept sneaking closed fists. Like I kind of like that. And then Williams would hit him back and lose a rope break. Like, Aries would do the closed fist, the ref wouldn't see it, so Williams would hit him back, and the ref would see it. You know, very schoolyard stuff. Um, the announcers note that uh, Generation Next is not in Aries' corner, and that they weren't in Shelly's corner the night before for it, so I guess the gimmick is that they take title matches with more respect. I guess that's the idea. Um, yeah. Nolte actually criticizes the rules. I imagine Gabe was probably pretty pissed about this. He was, like, hitting someone in the face twice gets a penalty, but choking on the ropes doesn't. So Gabe was probably like, shut up, why are you, why are you doing that? Um, <laughs> but, because, um, you know, this is like Gabe's pet project right now, is this uh, pure title thing. 
Um, so Ares was uh, working on Doug's back with knees and chin locks with knees, and he's um, but uh, he's more selling his neck than his back for whatever reason. Um, but um, you know, Ares he goes for a Muda lock until Doug uses his second rope break. Then Ares does a corkscrew screw dive onto Doug on the floor instead of his usual like missile tope thing. Um, so Doug rams Ares' shoulder on the post, and they tease both guys getting counted out, but they get back in at 19. You know, I guess getting trying to get the count out part of it over, which they haven't really gone too much yet, because, um, you know, normal ROH matches do not have countouts. Um, so Doug is much more hard-hitting here. He does the knee lift for two. Ares go, he goes to clothesline Ares, but... Uh, to Doug, but Doug knees him in the arm. He does the bomb scare to the shoulder and does a bridging hammer lock, and Ares uses his second rope break. Then Ares misses a spinning elbow, but gets hit by a big running forearm for two. Doug gets uh, a rings of Saturn, which it's funny because Ares has, you know, does that move too, type move, and Ares, and he uses final rope break. And then Ares holds on to the rope for a minute, trying to spare his injured shoulder. So I like that. Like, the rope breaks were gone, so he's just, like, clinging. Um, but Williams goes up to the top and drops to the mat, pulling Ares' arm down with him. And then Williams stops Ares' 450 attempt and puts him in an arm hold on the rope, and Ares taps out. I thought everything was good about the match technically, but I just didn't find it had a lot of energy. So I think they saved a lot for a potential rematch, which I'm not sure if they ever had one. I think I like this match a little bit more than you, although, again, I would put this right at basically at the ring. I've been giving everything except maybe I think the one match that's a little bit lower than everything else so far would be the six way just because it was shorter and sloppy. But that was fun for what it was. But I do agree, though, that when you watch this match, it's definitely not the match. I think you watch it and know that if these two were told to go out in a main event and have a 20 minute match. Um, they would do a lot differently and a lot better. I don't know how much of this match is just the, that they're wrestling for the first time and how much of it is them holding back and how much of it is maybe the pure rules because I do think the pure rules slowed this match down a little bit because even though you do still get, you know, you still get a good amount of action. You get those big little bursts of Austin Aries explosive offense. A lot of this match was focused on putting each other in submissions to try and get your opponent to use up a rope break. So I feel like that naturally just kind of slowed the match down a little bit. And yeah, they didn't go maybe as crazy or as big at the end as you would see. in I think if they had, again, if they had done a main event, but I actually enjoyed this match a fair bit. I, um, Austin, I wrote in my notes that there was, a. More knee porn in this match than uh, the Victorian underground during Puritan times. I think I was trying a little too hard in my notes there. But um, Austin Aries hits this great like knee drop to Williams that looks like he's just crushing his face. And then Williams grabs Aries later and he does like has him in the cravat and he does the knee lifts to his head while he's holding the cravat, which I always think is a cool spot. And Williams does his usual great high knee lift and Williams does the bomb scare, which is the top rope knee drop, like you mentioned. So if you like knee offense, this is the match for you. Um, also going to, and I, and I do think what I, what, what was cool about this match and you, you mentioned it was, I think this is the first pure title match where they really use all three of the rules because the three main rules of the pure title that differentiates it from 
regular matches is they have a count out. There's a 20 count on the floor. They, um, the three rope breaks and no punches allowed. And, and I feel like a lot of pure matches before this and a lot going afterwards only really focus on the, uh, the rope breaks and some focus on some of the other stuff, but I felt like this was the first time where they had Williams actually lose a uh, rope break because he threw punches twice. And like you mentioned, Aries kind of tricks him where before the match, when uh, the ref is turning to the timekeeper to start the match, Aries cheap shots Williams with a punch. And so when Williams throws a punch back, that's the only one the ref sees and he gets a warning. And then later, um, there's a moment where he kind of Aries tricks him again. But the thing I didn't like about that spot, which I thought was kind of weird was, uh, it looked like at least from the camera angle, we saw that Aries, I mean, that Williams really was like Aries has Williams in a headlock and it really looked like Williams was actually pulling Austin Aries hair, Austin Aries hair. And then, um, when the ref would always check, that's when Aries would throw punches. And then eventually Williams gets so pissed. He throws a punch back and gets caught and loses the rope break. But it was like, I actually, it did look like, like you were cheating Williams, like you were pulling his hair. So it kind of took away a little bit of the sympathy. And then later you do get that, um, the 20 count on the floor, which is the first time we really got one of those in a pure title match, I think. And they both go to 19 brawling on the floor and then roll on the ring at the same time. And it's one of those spots that sounds boring on paper, but if you've watched every ring of honor show, because they've never done that, it is a little bit of a novelty. And I think if I was watching this match live as a regular there, like I would have maybe even bought it or at least thought maybe they would do a double count just to switch. And yeah, the one other thing I got to mention is like you said, um, Mark Nolte in this match he points out multiple times in the match, he's like, Gabe, well, it's not Gabe, it's uh, Jimmy Bauer, but he's like, Jimmy, if, uh, you know, if if punches are rope breaks, why isn't Aries getting a rope break taken away for, like, choking Williams on the ropes or stuff? And he keeps bringing that up. And again, it goes back to my central point with Mark Nolte, which is he's, he's pointing out things that's making everybody look bad. Like, you don't need to point that out because then it makes you sit down and think, well, yeah, why is the rule? Why are the rules so arbitrary? Like, why can someone go to the eyes and it doesn't cost them a rope break? But if you throw a punch, it does cost you a rope break, even though they're both illegal. And, and, and yeah, like you said, like you can tell Gabe's probably just in his head, probably thinking like, dude, just shut up. Like, you don't need to bring that up. Exactly. But, it's something Nolte just has a habit with where he he's treating all, he's treating everything almost like it's a shoot when your job is again to to hide the negatives and focus on the positives and right you're like a, you're a salesman and a storyteller basically when you're a wrestling announcer you're not there to like pick every strategy apart yeah so but otherwise good match and again I, I think some people like I think if you come into this match and you think oh, I'm going to see Doug Williams versus Austin Aries. You're going to be disappointed unless you also know that it's just kind of the mid-card version of that match. If you come with that expectation, then I don't think you'll be disappointed. It is a good match. I just think, yeah, if you're coming in thinking it's the best version of what these two could do, yeah, you're not getting that. Yes, that's that's true. Um, you know, Accepting that this is the, what they were going for, they did a good job with it. And that brings us to the match. I think I that this is the match I was disappointed in, Matt. And that's Low Key, who comes to the ring with Homicide, Julius Smokes, and Rocky Romero. And he defeats Mark Briscoe via submission in 16 minutes, 49 seconds with the Dragon Clutch. Now, 
first, let me say, I think this match is good. I, I, I think every match on the show, other than, you know, the six, well, even the six, I'd say everything's been three stars or better, but nothing's been like four stars. Everything's been in that range. And I think this would be like for me in the low three star range too, but that's really disappointing for me because low key and Mark Briscoe as wrestlers, I, I love them. Maybe not as people, but as wrestlers, I have all, all the time in the world for both of these guys. And I think these two guys naturally, you would think on paper, they would go great together because Mark Briscoe really good at taking a beating at selling you know, probably because he's the younger Briscoe brother, he's already at this point in his career, probably has just a million matches of experience of, you know, being the face in peril for Jay. So he's really good at taking a beating and low key, great at giving a beating, you know, great at being the guy in control and kicking ass. And in this match, both guys do a lot of what they're great at and do it well. Like low key, he really beats down uh, Mark, and um, a lot of it's kind of methodical, where he's just smacking him around in the corners. That's maybe could be a little more exciting, but he also does like uh, his great top top rope double stomp. He has a moment where Mark is just sitting in the corner, and he kicks Mark in the chest so hard it's just brutal. And you know he does a lot of that, and Mark does a lot of good selling. Like I felt like there's a few moments in this match where. Mark's getting beat up and you can see his facial expression getting progressively more angry, which I think was a nice touch. I think he does a lot of these little Ricky Steamboat style mini comebacks where he'll fire up and land one or two moves, but Loki will quickly cut him off. And um, his selling is really good. Like there's a moment where in one of these mini comebacks, he's like throwing punches and he like wobbles while he's on offense and then falls on his ass. And I thought it was just neat little touches like that. But yet, the match just doesn't come together. It's like, it's like they had all the ingredients to make something really good and they never cooked it. Like, um, because you keep love, love your, love your food analogies. Yeah. This is another Trevor Dame wrestling food analogy. It's like they had all the ingredients to make a strawberry shortcake. And instead they just served you strawberries and whipped cream, which is still good, but it's not nearly what they could have made. And here, so much – the majority of this match is low-key just beating the crap out of Mark Briscoe. And you think, oh, great. It's going to build to this really big moment where Mark Briscoe makes a comeback. And then there's going to be like a lot of big near falls and it's going to be great. And I would say the comeback Mark Briscoe eventually gets, it's not worth how kind of long the low-key beatdown was. And I don't know why it's not as I, – I can't quite put my finger on why his comeback isn't as satisfying. I was thinking maybe it's because Mark makes so many mini comebacks that when he has his final big one, you don't really completely buy into it. Maybe it's because um, his, his comeback, maybe it's just the moves aren't big enough. Um, maybe I, – I don't know why, but it just – it it doesn't work. And then the end from there, it's like you could – it felt like they were halfway to a great match and they never go the second half of the way. And, and it's especially disappointing, Matt, I would say, not just because I really like these guys, but because the crowd is super into, into this, at least at first. Like at the start of this match, there is a shockingly loud – like split crowd, like a legit split crowd where half of them are chanting for Mark and half are cheering for low key. And it goes on for like a good 30 seconds or more at, while they're just staring at each other to the point where I was like, wow, I didn't realize people were this excited for Mark Briscoe versus low key. And 
I feel like they had the crowd like was were already in, ready for a great match. Like they 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 could have this could have been really special and it wasn't, and it was just fairly good. But I mean, maybe I'm being too hard on it. I don't know. What, no, am I wrong there? No, I agree with everything you said. But I think I know the reason. It's because Loki was trying to have that. He wanted to get over as a heel. So he was being much more methodical. He wasn't giving the crowd everything they wanted in terms of his like pacing, in terms of the moves that he was doing. He was stalling. He was kind of um, you know, like jawing with the crowd, right? Uh, the, uh, the Rottweilers were um, – were interfering a little bit. He was going out of his way to actually work like a heel. And that made the match less than what you would expect. He wasn't able, he wasn't at the point yet where he had the heel shtick so down that he could be this character while also having these great matches. And um, he was just, he had really good matches, but not like the level that you'd expect from Loki because he was still trying to take the crowd down a few notches, if that makes sense. And I think it worked. Like, he played possum about a hurt leg and then shoved the wreck the ref and did a springboard back kick. Like that was a really cool spot, but it was slow, you know? It was it wasn't like this like suddenness that you would get from like the best low key matches before, if that makes sense. He was doing his double stomp, but it wasn't like you know, later on he would get to do those double stomps completely out of the blue, fast pace, and the crowd already bought him as a heel. This was him getting himself over as a heel, I think. Um, the stuff that I d- drove me nuts about the match, actually, it was partly during the match, but partly also in the, uh, at post-match, where was Jay? Like, I mean, it's especially in the post-match, but there was all this interference going on and Jay was just nowhere to be found and he wasn't hurt or anything. Um, another thing I thought was funny, Gabe at one point goes, the Briscoes, they like to drink and they like to fight. And I was like, I'm pretty sure Mark is still underage at this point. Uh, <laughs> I think he's only 20 years old, but, um... Maybe not even. But besides that, um, yeah, I, I think I think Loki did this by design. I actually think that's a really good point that I didn't think of. And yeah, I uh, I did not – I failed to mention, so thank God you did, um, that uh, th- this is probably the most healer – I mean Loki's only wrestled two matches as a heel in Ring of Honor th- at this point. But yeah, he does a lot of heel stuff there. Like you said, he plays possum where he fakes a knee injury and he tosses the ref into Mark. He tells a fan to shut up. He grabs a chair at one point. You know, he goes to the eyes. He, he does a ton of heel stuff. And one thing I really liked about Loki here, there actually was a moment where, much like the the match on the previous night, the tag match against Moff and Whitmer, where he does a sequence with Moff where he lets Moff completely get the best of him and then he kind of looks almost scared of Moff for a second. There's a moment early in this match where he gets on his hands and knees in like a grappling stance and it basically tells mark like let's matt wrestle and he lets mark completely get the best of him and then again he does that kind of like heelish oh shit like you completely beat me i don't want to do that again and i feel like sometimes people say oh low-key you know they all you know low-key has a reputation for being very stubborn but i do think if you watch a match like this like you said, he's definitely doing things he would not do as a face, like a lot of things. Yeah, it seems and, and like it seems like if you know Loki personally, you might know more the ins and outs of the ways that he could be difficult. But as a from a fan perspective, he doesn't seem completely unwilling to do business like some guys are. Yeah, even as a face, he sells. But yeah, I, I think some people who maybe just hear about Loki's reputation would be surprised to see him do spots like that where he completely shows ass as a heel where he's like, yeah, that guy definitely got the best of me. You know, he he was willing, at least on this double shot, like to do that. 
he still wrestled, I would say, like 80%, like the low key as a face, but 20% was a bunch of heel spots now. Um, right, right. And the pace was very different. Yeah. One thing I also noticed, Matt, I don't know if you noticed this during this match, and it came up a few times during the show, is for some reason the audio on the mix on this show was completely off. Like, whenever the crowd got really super loud, it's like it overtook the the commentary volume. Like, there was a few times during the show where I couldn't hear, really make out commentary because, like, the crowd would be chanting very loud, and it was weird. Usually on Ring of Honor shows, I don't have that problem, and this show... Again, just one of those weird technical things. Also, there was a moment in this match where uh, it was low-key took a header into the mat. Like, he hits forehead first on, like, some exchange, like the great Kazushi did. And I don't know if there was a forehead magnet in under the canvas or something, because usually you don't see one guy in a wrestling show have that happen to them. And two guys on this show, like, took a header right into the mat that looked... This one wasn't as bad as the Great Kazushi, but forehead magnet. That sounds like you know. Remember how Conan O'Brien used to have like those satellite channel skits where it's like, uh, oh, this is the, um, you know, this is the fart all day channel, and it would just be somebody farting all day, you know, something like that. And so like this would be the 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 forehead magnet channel where everyone would keep bumping their heads because of a forehead magnet. <laughs> Or like those, well, there was that head on whatever that I don't even know what that product was supposed to be, but all it was a headache, a headache thing, head on applied directly it was like to a the forehead, headache thing, yeah, something like that. Doesn't, That's yeah, I, to me. I never tried it. Cannot, me cannot too. vouch for its e- efficacy or lack thereof. So the one thing though that that did another thing that did bug me about this match, Matt, and I think it ties back into what we saw earlier was. Interference leads to the finish here, you know, like smokes and everyone interferes. And the thing that really bugged me about this was Ring of Honor at this period was trying to do more interference. And, and, you know, they were changing up the whole company style a bit. And I don't mind interference in matches. I don't even mind interference when, when it leads to a finish. Sometimes I do, but a lot of times I don't. But what I hate with Ring of Honor interference usually is they don't do it elegantly. Like so many times, including in this match and in the Alex Shelley interference earlier, they make like little to no effort to like hide it from the ref. Like the ref literally, I think at the end sees Julius smokes, like grabbing Mark Briscoe as he's on the top row, which directly leads to like the end of the match. And, and it's one of those things again, where it it's, and I, I think Gabe, when he sees this on commentary, actually literally shouts DQ him. And it's just like, you're making the refs look so bad. Like you have to, you can have all the interference you want, but you have to actually like protect the refs, so to speak. Like going back to that earlier match, I guess one thing we didn't mention, I think with the, uh, the tag match, the generation X tag match is there's a finish and the ref says like, Oh, it's like, I think Walters or whatever, like the, one of the, two baby faces has like the pin or the submission and the ref is like, you don't, you're not the legal man. So I'm not, I'm not counting it. And it's one of those things again, where because that's ignored 99% of the time in ring of honor, it makes you kind of angry because you're like, why are you paying attention to this now? And I just feel like there's so many things in these matches that involve the refs where you could get away with it. And it wouldn't be annoying if you just took a little more time to like distract the ref or be consistent and, on this show, it seems to come up a lot where 
I just noticed myself getting annoyed with it in a way I wasn't maybe in the past. Yeah, and also it goes to a lot of like something that's been an issue with ROH for a while, which is like, what does it want to be? Is it like pure straight wrestling that they follow the rules strictly or not? Like, if a guy pulls out a chair in a lot of matches, like they are allowed to use the chair basically, right? They don't get into any trouble for using chairs and weapons and stuff in regular matches. And that that's true in ROH for years. And it's like, okay, but like they never address why that's okay. Or, you know, it's like, is this ECW? What is this? Are there rules? I don't know. Um, and yes, you're right. Same thing with interference. Um, another thing I wanted to add also, they mentioned again that low-key promo that was redacted. And Gabe is like, yeah, he says, like, it's a disgusting promo. We had to edit it out. He says something about how respect isn't given, it's earned or taught. And I'm like, yeah, man, that sounds vile. It's a good thing, <laughs> good thing they got rid of that. I don't think we, I'd be able to handle that one. Yeah, I, I love that too. Like, that's the worst part of it he can hint. Like, <laughs> he says, you know, you got to earn respect. So um, after the match, the Rottweilers enter the ring and they hold up Mark. Key gets on the mic and says, respect is either earned or taught. So I'm surprised Gabe didn't edit this out. That's that's horrible to hear. Uh, and he says, Mark Danwell did not earn my respect tonight. And he gives him one super hard slap to the face. And yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, it is kind of weird to see that Jay doesn't come out for this it really bothered me especially when i realized later on he comes out to save samoa joe and like his brother's just getting the shit kicked out of him and they make no they, they don't make they don't have any explanation for why jay doesn't make the save here like he's not at the building yet he's he's getting iced up like whatever like doesn't know about like what what the hell like it doesn't make any sense why would he not come out see i i was kind of explaining it away in my head watching this knowing the match or going well jay briscoe jay briscoe wrestles the next match so he's probably in the back getting ready and warming up so he can't help his brother but then i think the next match i think on commentary they even mentioned like this is the first match back from intermission so it's like well that if there was an intermission between these matches like yeah why doesn't jay help his brother you know when he probably had 20 minutes between matches and yeah that definitely that's one thing i would not have mentioned on commentary then that jay had whole of intermission where he could have gotten ready and still helped his brother but that actually brings us to the next match Homicide defeats Jay Briscoe in 11 minutes, 23 seconds via pinfall after he hits a lariat. Uh, Matt, you didn't like that Jay uh, did not help his brother. Awful brother behavior. How did he redeem himself in this match? I mean, there was another part. Like, I thought that after all that that happened, Jay would, like, come out and, like, just, like, run in and attack Homicide before the bell. But instead, the opposite happens. Um, Homicide threw the towel at Jay and then jumped him before the bell. So I did feel like there was a little bit of psychological malpractice here going on. Like, Jay should have been involved in the previous finish. He should have been furious at the beginning of this. It didn't really happen, but Jay did get a lot of offense early, did a top rope drop kick. I thought that was good. Um, Homicide came back. They did a big struggle on the top rope where um, Jay was um, hit a big belly-to-belly overhead throw, and you know both were down. They were training shots in a mid-ring. Um, Jay did this really great-looking Splash Mountain powerbomb. I don't know if you remember that. Like One of the yeah. best that I've seen in a while for two homicide slammed jay's head first into the turnbuckle and did a pile driver um it was funny to hear key on the outside <laughs> excuse me i sneezed um uh, it was funny to hear key on the outside uh cheering for homicide because you don't usually hear that from low key just like yeah come on let's go you can do it um and like homicide and then homicide goes cop killer and loki goes definitely <laughs> which I, I don't know i just thought that was so funny <laughs> he just yells definitely 
Um, I, th- that was also something I loved where it was goes back to WrestleMania where Paul Heyman was at ringside and you could hear everything he said because there was no crowd. And he was like, after Brock hit the F5, he was like, hit him with, keep hitting him with F5s. And I just love when like, wrestlers um advice to the wrestlers in the ring are like hit your finisher like wow no one could think of that there was a um there was a really funny thing when i was a a kid i was on a little league team and it was this was like the shitty little league like for all the kids that weren't actually any good at sports just a bunch of dorks and um so like my dad was it was actually a pretty good athlete. I wasn't, um, and so he would be there. And like this other guy who was uh, was the manager, quote unquote, of the team, and he would like just like do this whole like manager like fa- like almost like cosplay almost like where he would like have to really feel like a manager. So like the ki- one the kid on the mound would be pitching, he would stop to go in and give advice, and I was in the outfield like hiding. But my dad would be right there, so he would tell me like whenever he came in to like give him advice, he would just be like, "Let's go." <laughs> like <laughs> come on let's get him like like that would be all he said and that's sort of what i rem- that reminds me of just like saying the most obvious pointless things to somebody to cheer them on um and like low-key going definitely um <laughs> but but jay escaped the cop killer and then homicide escaped the jay driller and homicide hit a power bomb then they j- traded yakuza kicks because of course they did um and Jay knocked down Homicide. So Homicide came back with a lariat. Jay kicked out. Um, meanwhile, um, meanwhile, Gabe is distracted. Oh, excuse me. Homicide is distracted by the fans. And so Jay drops him on his head with a suplex. And Jay goes up to the top. And Smokes grabs his leg. And Homicide double suplexes him. So Homicide then lariats him for the win. I actually like this match more than Loki versus Mark because I just thought it had more action. I don't think it was maybe quite as dramatic, but I just thought it had more energy. And I thought I could use some energy after that previous match. I was still annoyed psychologically that Jay wasn't a little bit more um, furious and wrestling with a little more anger. And then they beat down Jay after the match. Well, you could talk about that in a second. But... um, but he told um, that he doesn't deserve respect. That was the main thing. And Mark doesn't come out to save Jay either, but at least you can make the excuse that Mark was just beaten up. So he has an excuse. Yeah. Um, this was another match. It, it, it goes hand in hand with the last one. And in a way, I, I prefer the Aries Williams match to both these Briscoe singles matches, but I think all three are kind of, they're all decently good. Like they're all like three and a quarter star matches or somewhere in that range to me somewhere in that range, but like you would look on paper and expect more from all of those. And I, and I feel like it's going to sound like I'm being harder on these matches than something like Collier Romero. When I think that match is probably at the same level as these matches, but I think the difference is that there are some undercard matches where it feels like they're meant to be kind of like good, but not great. And there are some matches where the guys are so good or they're in a spot later in the card where you feel like, that could have been great or should have been great. And it was only good. And even though it can be the same like level of quality, the former matches, the matches like Collier and Romero are feel better because of that, because you don't leave with that disappointment. Oh, yeah, but, of course. I mean, it's, it's all about expectations. Exactly. And, um, I, I thought this match, it had a fun, um, opening. I thought where they were kind of fast paced at the opening and then it kind of slowed down a bit. And that was more of this disappointing. And then it picked up again at the end, but it, it, it was good, but not great. And 
I want to make clear, I made a mistake with the last match. This was the match that had uh, Gabe shouting DQ him when the, the Julie Smokes interfered in full view of the ref. And I completely agree with you. I made a note of this as well, that Jay Briscoe is completely emotionless here. For when you consider everything that he's gone through in this feud where, you know, he's wrestled Homicide before recently. And just two shows earlier, Homicide threw a fireball that hit his brother in the face. And, you know, Mark had to be taken to the back. And here, you know, Jay wrestles with zero emotion at all. Like he's never – he wrestles this like this would be any other match of his life. And and that is disappointing. Where I feel like even Mark against Low Key showed a little more emotion. So even if this match had a bit more action, that definitely kind of threw me off here on this one. One thing I really did like was Homicide hits two lariats in this match. And on the first one, Jay like lands right on his head and neck to the point where it actually looks kind of dangerous. And then he just sells like a dead fish afterwards. And it just is it's a crazy bump and a great sell of the Lariat. Made it look like a million bucks. So I really thought that was cool, but, and the other thing that, uh, that kind of bugged me again, it's kind of a theme for the night. It, it's a uh, Mark Nolte again during these matches. He talks about like, why are there so like, why are all these stables allowed to interfere in matches? And Gabe is even like, maybe we'll have to look into that. And it's one of those things where when you point it out and it keeps happening, cause I don't think this is the first time he's pointed it out. It starts making you, it makes the company look dumb because you start thinking, if, if guys are going to keep interfering match after match, it makes the company look dumb for not changing the rules. It makes the baby faces look dumb for not wising up and bringing back up to the, their matches with them. Like at least Collier and Walters brought Ricky Steamboat to the ring. It, it just, you know, they're, they're doing the same trick over and over and you're having an announcer pointing out, this is kind of stupid. And it just is, it's kind of a theme for the night, but all told, this match was still worth it because the highlight for me was at one point when Jay climbs the buckles to grab Homicide, who's on the top rope, you just hear Julius Smokes very clearly go, oh, Jesus. And it was just a real funny moment from Julius Smokes. The, the, outside, the, ring, the outside the ring commentary from the Rottweilers was very pleasing the entire, the entire match. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care what Gabe says. I think Julius Smokes is still a cool dude. He's a cool yeah. guy. He is a real He's cool guy. Cool. <laughs> um. So after that, uh, that brings us to what happened after the match. Yeah, after the match, Julius Smokes gets on the mic and he says, things I can't make out, I wrote, as Homicide slaps Jay. Loki then says, Rottweilers 2, Briscoe Brothers 0. And Matt, I, I didn't realize as it kind of snuck up on us, this is the second last show we're going to see the Briscoes in Ring of Honor for quite some time. They have a, I believe on the next show, a tag match against Key and Homicide and I think that's it for quite a while for them. It's it's for I mean by our pace, it's the last time we're going to see the Briscoe brothers in the next thirty five years. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last. The next show will be the last time when we're not collecting social security <laughs> that we'll, we'll be watching a Briscoes match in Ring of Honor. That's but, right. Uh, what 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 we got to watch next was the Ring of Honor World Title match. Samoa Joe successfully defended the title. He defeats Colt Cabana via pinfall in 17 minutes 29 seconds after he hits the Muscle Buster. Uh, and yet a can't believe I'm saying this. This is a crazy. It's going to shock everyone. Another like three and a half, three and three quarter star match even for me. Uh, I actually like this match quite a bit though because. 
it was different than a lot of recent Samoa Joe matches where, especially with the homicide matches, it's kind of portrayed as these, you know, you know, Joe always comes off as dominant, but it's like two guys just throwing bombs at each other, working really hard, like doing big moves, like mano a mano. And what I like about this match is they don't wrestle it like Colt Cabana is on Joe's level. Like they wrestle it kind of like how their characters and pushes are at this point, which is Colt's this, you know, it's not a blood feud. Joe isn't angry at him and Colt is going to get dominated except for he's good at counters and he has these roll-ups that he could win with a roll-up. And so he's just kind of trying to survive until he can get a roll-up that gets him the win, and which is how he pinned Joe at survival of the fittest. And so a lot of this match is wrestled at kind of a slower pace, but I feel like it's a pace that makes sense because unlike some of the other matches that just were having a slower pace, I felt like just to have a slower pace, I felt like this match was having a slower pace because that was the story. Like Joe would beat up Colt in in an exchange, get the better of him, and Colt would sell and Joe would just kind of let him get up. And then they'd have another exchange like that. And then occasionally Colt would counter and get control for, you know, 30 seconds or he'd get a roll up. And I thought because it actually played into a story, I really enjoyed that. And I also liked that, you know, they kind of worked it like Colt, like, like Colt had done his homework. I think even Nolte mentions or either Nolte or Gabe mentions that on commentary, like at one point. Uh, Joe has him for the Olay kick, but Colt grabs a different chair at ringside and blocks Joe from hitting the Olay kick. And then he actually hits the Olay kick on Joe. And then later in the match, um, he actually does a common Samoa Joe move where after a kick out, he immediately transitions into the STF, which is, you know, something Joe does all the time. So I like touches like that. And yeah, and I and I did like that they played this like a face versus face match, which is what it was. Where, uh, you know, Joe in you know the matches with Homicide, he does wrestle more intensely, and like he really wants to kill this guy. Jay Briscoe could take a couple notes, and in this match, he does wrestle it like he doesn't have a grudge against this guy. It's a little bit more laid back while still being Samoa Joe. And then after the match, he gets down on one knee and reaches out and shakes Colt's hand. He initiates it. And then he, they hug each other. Like it was kind of refreshing on a night with so many heel interference finishes to just see a match of like two baby faces, have a wrestling match. They hug at the end. You know, they had a good competition. I actually, I like that a lot. Um, uh, but what what'd you think about the match? I thought it was about as good as you said. I was maybe a little disappointed in the sense of like, I think they maybe went too far into the cabana doesn't really have a chance aspect of it. You know, like obviously he didn't have a chance, but I think he was presented as a little bit more of a serious threat than you would think from watching this match previously. Um, you know, it really was, you know, they, they, they tried to sell at the beginning that Joe was like kind of, worn down because he had that brutal match with Homicide the night before, but he really did dominate the match. Like, there were certain points where Colt kind of felt like a pushover, and like you said, he did the quick roll-ups and stuff. He got some big moves. He reversed the Ole Ole kick, and then Nolte was like, I've never seen anyone counter the Ole Ole kick, and I was just like, dude, I'm almost positive you've seen it in matches that you've called over the past couple months. Like, (laughs) It's happened like a million times. Am I, am I wrong? Hasn't that happened a lot even already? Like, I couldn't pick out like in my memory, but I was pretty sure like probably within the first five Olay kicks, someone did 
a reversal of it. Yeah, and like I mean, this is just a—it's a very common spot, you know, or a, a reversing, escaping, drop toehold, something. You know what I mean? Um, um, but you know, Colt did do some cool moves. Uh, the back suplex where he dropped him on his head. They teased him trying to go for a body slam earlier, and I did enjoy that, like that he was uh, like you know trying to like treat him like a giant. And then he eventually gets him up, and it's a pretty crappy body slam. And then <laughs> and then later in the match, he hits a much closer to normal body slam, but still not that good. Um, but um, but no, I, I mean mostly you know there were these quick reversals, and then Joe would just hit a big move, a big clothesline, whatever, and knock him out. Um, was this the first one of the first matches? Because I think he maybe beat. Um, did he beat Reyes with it? I forget. But he beat him with a regular like on the floor muscle buster, you know, as opposed to a top rope muscle buster. He has not done that too many times so far, right? Yeah, because he he's only won a few like two or three times I think with the muscle buster so far. He beat and, and two and two of them were off the top rope. Yeah, exa- yeah, the, you know the the homicide one where he debuted it in Ring of Honor and. Was it the Jay Briscoe one? Yeah, like, in the cage where he hits. Yeah, so I feel like there might have been. been one other match, but I can't say for sure. So this was either the first or second time he hit the reg. He won with the regular, just on the canvas muscle buster. Um, but yeah, I thought it was good. I just thought no one believed Cabana had a chance, and I don't think the match did much to change anyone's minds. Yeah, I can definitely see that viewpoint. Like again, I, I just thought this one actually had a bit of a storyline reason, and but. And I also agree, I should have brought up, like, yeah, Cole Cabana hit a couple of really ugly-looking, some of the uglier body slams you'll ever see. And I guess it kind of works because, like you said, he's trying to sell that um, Joe's a big, heavy guy. But I don't think that was all Colt selling. <laughs> like, some of those were pretty ugly. But yeah. But it was cool also to see Colt get such a, like, I guess we should mention Colt, got like a really huge hometown reaction. This wasn't the first time Ring of Honor had streamers, but the this match and the next match are, are the first time like one of the one of the instances where I think streamers are going to start becoming a much more regular thing in the company where both the this match and the next match get quite a few streamers, well, especially the next match. Well, Joe got the streamers, right? And then Colt picked up a streamer and threw it for himself and said, "Colt Cabana, yay." Yeah, that was funny too. Yeah. Um but yeah, that that's a. Uh, it, it was cool. Like this was arguably you know the, the biggest match in Colt's career up to this point. Uh, I guess you you could say his opening Ring of Honor match was big because he was trying to get a place in the company. But and, and the ta- get, and the tag title main event from Reborn Stage Two, I think, was probably up there as well. Yeah, those would probably be the three. So this was a big match, and yeah, Joe did take a lot of it, but I thought it made sense. So. After the match, the Rottweilers hit the ring, and they start attacking Joe until the Briscoes run in with chairs and chase them off. So let it be clear, the Briscoes care more about uh, Samoa Joe than they do about each other. Uh, (laughs) Joe gets back up. He stares down the Rottweilers from inside the ring. He holds up the Ring of Honor title. Uh, Joe gets down on one knee and shakes Colt Cabana's hand, like I said before. The two hug, the crowd chants ROH. And that reminds me, one other thing I missed was, did you know, well, you obviously noticed, but we didn't mention, Colt's doing his entrance for this match. He's getting this big reaction from the crowd. And he's got the tag title, the Ring of Honor tag title around his waist. And then he jumps on the apron and the title just falls on the floor off his waist. And he just kind of sells it and looks down and the crowd laughs. And I think some people chant, you fucked up. But that was the kind of thing where, it was obviously like a legit mistake, but if anyone can get away with it with their character, it's Colt Cabana. But right. even in like his greatest moment, he's 
you know, having this big goof. But uh, we have this cut to minutes later where clearly a few minutes have passed, but we're still in the in the building, in the ring, because there's no backstage segments. And Allison Danger is walking to the ring in a neck brace, interrupting Dave's Dave Prezak's ring introduction for the main event. And none of the wrestlers are out for the main event, but Prezak was letting the crowd know what it was going to be. The crowd chants, you got fucked up at Allison Danger, so they're clearly very sympathetic towards her. <laughs> um, Danger gets in the ring with a mic, and she says she made Moff and Whitmer who they are today. She mentions that Homicide crippled her the night before, which gets a large pot from the crowd. And then Danger says she blames Moff and Whitmer for Homicide giving her the cop killer, which was a little projection there. But uh, she says they're the reason she was in the hospital last night. That gets a loud cheer, and the crowd does a very loud shut the fuck up chant at her. This seemed to be an extremely all-male crowd, too. Like, I was looking, I didn't even see a hint of woman in that audience. Yeah, um, Danger calls tonight the final match in her relentless feud with the Second City Saints. People she says she hates almost as much as she hates Moth and Whitmer. Danger says tonight will be the end, and she wants all four men to be taken out. Then she asks the staff of Ring of Honor to bring her weapons of destruction to ringside. And all of a sudden, we get Ring of Honor staff bringing out a barbed wire board, a barbed wire two-by-four, just various things like that. Where does she get the power to dictate this? Yeah, I I have no idea. The crowd loves seeing the weapons, and... um, Allison walks to the back of the building. She grabs a chair to sit down and the ring intro starts. So uh, that's an interesting little touch they try and make where, you know, you could have just had those weapons brought out and everyone would just, of course, their weapons are brought out because the next match is a unsanctioned street fight. But it was kind of a neat little way to add story to the idea of the reason some of those weapons are out there is because Allison Danger hates both these teams and just wants them to kill each other. So, but yeah, it was kind of funny to see her like literally order ring of honor staff, like bring out the barbed wire board and here it comes. But that brings us Matt to the main event for the show an unsanctioned Chicago street fight. The second city saints of ACE steel and CM punk defeat BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff in 27 minutes 42 seconds when Steele pins Whitmer after he hits a tombstone pile driver off the turnbuckle through a table. Matt, this was, uh, I think commentary said this was the most violent match in ring of honor history. I don't know if I'd put it above one of the homicide Carino matches, but I might, I'm not sure, but it has to be at the very worst, like top two, right? Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, you have to accept when you're watching a match like this from this era that there are going to be lots of chair shots to the head, and those seem really bad now. Um, You know, they have for a long time, but especially if you just watch the Chris Benoit documentary, they seem really bad. Um, So, if you can get past that, I think this match really delivered what it advertised. I don't think they held anything back. I don't think there's really anything that I can really say, like, oh, they should have done this instead. Um, The one negative thing I could say is that maybe, maybe, maybe this was artificially stretched out, the match, in the sense that, you know, since Moth and Whitmer were the heels now, they were doing a lot of stalling, right? Like, beginning to go in the ring, lingering on the outside, teasing, leaving, all this stuff, like... And these Saints try to attack every time it looks like they're getting into the ring again. And then finally, Moff and Whitmer attack when Punk comes outside, and then the match is on. And the the Saints get a little bit of shine back in the ring. They double-team Moff and Whitmer. Punk does a dive from the top to the outside. 
Ace goes for a tope, but BJ catches him with a chair to the head, so that's our first chair shot to the head. And there will be many, many more. They hit Punk in the head right after that, and Punk and Ace are just like bleeding right away. Um, Punk's um, blade job is good. But it's not like it's not one of his best. You know, we've mentioned a lot of times he so he does such good blade jobs. This yeah. was a good blade job, but it's not like epic punk blade job. But um, they do like Moth and Whitmer do whipping with belts. The Saints get the belts and they whip and clothesline each other with the belt. Um, Moth goes headfirst into the guardrail. So you know, and that one that's a pretty brutal headshot as well. Um, there's a funny spot where Ace holds Moth in the aisle so Punk can like run through the crowd and jump over the guardrail and dive on him. And BJ almost messes it up. Like BJ walks over and starts hitting him, and 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 like kind of like I guess Ace must whisper to him what's going on. So BJ just kind of like wanders away. Like <laughs> this is real. Like you can't really. There's no real explanation for why BJ stops attacking him other than he knows that he needs to get out of the way of the spot. But Punk is like runs from the crowd over the guardrail onto um, Moth in the aisleway who's being held up by Ace is basically what happens. Um, so Gabe calls Whitmer's blade job too early, which I thought was funny. He's like, BJ is, ble- BJ is bleeding. Oh no, sorry, Whitmer is not bleeding or he's not busted open yet, he says. <laughs> um, Punk holds a chair to Moth's face in the corner and Ace drop kicks it, drop kicks it into him. Um, then they sandwich Moff's head in the ladder and Ace hits the chair into it. Um, God, how many concussions must have been given in this match? Um, Punk hits the running corner, um, boot while the crowd chants kill him, which is something. Uh, And Moff is bleeding now. So they put BJ's neck against the turnbuckle and then they put a table up like on up to his throat so basically his head is like guillotined above the table. Then they put a ladder on top of the table and slide it into BJ's head. Um, I just wrote, geez. And now BJ is bleeding. Um, so Punk attacks both of them with the, uh, with the barbed wire 2x4. Punk goes to hit Moth with the 2x4, but Moth low blows him. And then BJ gets the 2x4 and does a Russian leg sweep with the 2x4, which is, I don't know, I just think that's funny. What am I going to do with this brutal barbed wire board? Let me hit a side Russian leg sweep. Moth <laughs> <laughs> um, hits Punk in the crotch with the barbed wire 2x4. Now that's how you use a barbed wire 2x4, <laughs> I think. Um, um, so... Moff gets the Moff now gets a barbed wire board, like a board that you lay on the ground with barbed wire. And Punk and BJT suplexing each other onto the board, but no one does. Um, then Punk goes for a swinging DDT onto the barbed wire, but Whitmer um, Whitmer releases him, and so Punk just kind of plants face first onto the board. Then Ace goes to suplex BJ onto it, but Moff. Uh, throws it out of the way and props it up in the corner. And then they do a lot of teases where they're going to throw each other into it in the corner until Moff hits his rolling cannonball on Punk into it. So they both kind of go into it. Then Ace takes like the remnants of the board, props that up, and whips Moff into it. So now it breaks twice. And Nulty's like, I don't know if you've ever been tangled up in barbed wire, Jimmy, but it actually does more damage getting the barbed wire off of you. So my thought was just, so Nolte's been tangled up in barbed wire? Like, <laughs> I, that's, I mean, that's the only conclusion I can draw. Um, well, maybe he was a farm. My dad was tangled up in barbed wire. He always told me stories like I think he was like running or something like as a farm boy and like tripped and fell into a barbed wire fence. And I don't know if he – he did not tell me the lesson of it hurt more coming out. I think he was more focused on just it hurt, period. Because, like, all right, even that no, that knowledge, like, 
what are you supposed to do with that knowledge? Like, he should have just left it in for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> You're just barbed wire, man, because I can't deal with the pain of taking it out. Um, but, yeah, maybe that happened. Maybe the same exact thing happened to Mark Nolte that happened to your dad. Um, <laughs> so, at this point, the crowd is standing. Like, this has been a lot of, like, action that has really captivated the crowd. The crowd is very into this. I'll be honest. I was very into it, too. Um, so, we're about 20 minutes in, and Ace does the first pinfall attempt after a sit-down powerbomb. Um, there's like a chair standoff and the team's like they let each other hit each other in the head with it this is probably the most problematic spot of the entire match they just stand there and get hit in the head with chairs and there's a big ROH chant they basically trade like the Saints hit the prophecy with chairs the prophecy hit the Saint with chairs all in the head and they just stand there and take it no coverage or anything so then um they, Moff and Whitmer go out to get more chairs and throw them into the ring. So the whole cha- crowd throws chairs in the ring. So the, 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 and the referee is kind of like ducking in the, in the side of the ring. But the ring is just covered in chairs and Gabe's like, we have a riot in Chicago. And I was just thinking, this is not what a riot is. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, even that first ROH riot wasn't really a riot, but at least that was like riot-esque. Um, yeah. This is people standing behind a guardrail. Um, but, um, the teams, they, then they go on and they fight on top of the chairs. And Moff half Nelson's suplexes Punk on the chairs. And then, without selling really, Moff po- um, Punk pops up and German suplexes Moff on them. Um, and um, Gabe goes, these men have no regard for their well-being. And I just wrote, nope, they definitely don't. Um, Moff sets up the ladder uh, in the in the the aisle way. Uh, like, oh, and he sets up the aisle like the ladder like across the guardrails in the Iowa way and puts puts Ace on it and BJ goes up to dive but Punk pulls him de- off onto it onto the chair onto the chairs and then Ace pulls Moth off and puts him on the ladder and so Punk does a dive from the top rope onto Moth onto a ladder in the uh, in the aisle I thought that was another pretty scary spot then Ace again hits BJ in the head with a chair. Um, BJ goes for a top rope exploder, but Ace fights off and tombstones him through the table and gets the pin. I guess if you are really, really a stickler for selling moves like dramatically for a long period of time, you will not like this. But if you just like are expect this is a this is a brawl, they're gonna hit every big move they can think of, they're gonna escalate the violence, it's gonna get more and more intense, they're gonna end at pretty much the right time. This was a great match, and this is still one of the most memorable brawls in ROH history. I think it was the most memorable memorable match of a weekend with a lot of good matches. Um, I was very impressed with the job they did on this. I agree. I thought this was a great match. I feel like this was a show where you have a lot of really talented wrestlers kind of having good matches but not doing everything you know they're capable of. This was the one match on the show where it felt like these guys were giving like a 110% over and above the Call of Duty performance just in terms of how long they went, um, you know, how much physical punishment they were willing to take, how invent how many ideas they seemed to have in this match. And um, I feel like hardcore matches, brawls, they can fail in a lot of ways, but the two ways most common these matches don't aren't aren't good. They're usually the two most common reasons why are these. The first one would be I've seen a lot of these matches. We've even seen them on, in the undercurrent and Ring of Honor of like brawls where it's clear they have one or two gimmick spots at the end, and the rest of the match is just them punching and bleeding at ringside, and they have no other ideas. So it's just like they're killing time. 
And then the other way these matches can fail is it's almost like the opposite where it's clear they've come up with 30 different gimmick spot ideas, but there's no match kind of in between them. It's just like, okay, we plan to hit you with this. Now we're going to hit you with this. And I've called this before, like kind of like the carrot top prop comedy of wrestling matches where it's literally feels less like a match and more like, look at these 18 things we got from the dollar store that we're going to hit each other. And as soon as we're done with these, the match is over. And I feel like what make one of the things that makes this match great is it finds the middle ground between those two things. It doesn't fall into either hole. Like the whole match, it felt uh, watching this match. It definitely felt like these guys came up with a, a lot of these spots had to have been things they thought of before the match and all the plans and all the weapons. So it felt like very, like they had put a lot of consideration in it, but yet there was enough space between each of the big weapon spots and where it was just some brawling that was fairly entertaining or some selling where it never felt like it felt like a wrestling match that had a lot of weapon spots. It didn't just feel like a weird exhibition. Like it still felt like a brawl, like they hated each other. So I felt like they had a good middle ground where it felt like every minute or two, you got some new weapon spot inter being introduced. Like, all right, here's the belts or here's the barbed wire board. Here's the two by four. Here's the chairs. Here's the tables. Here's the ladder. But they all, they, they kept them coming every two or three minutes, which I liked where it wasn't just every two seconds. And so you could have made this match shorter, but I think then you would have been forced to condense it down. It would have felt more artificial. And I actually feel like for a match that was almost 28 minutes long, there was only a couple times where I felt even a hint of maybe this is dragging just for a little bit. But for the most part, for a 28-minute brawl like this to, to be like that, like I feel like that's a huge achievement in itself. Yeah, yeah, you you ran it down really well. Just pretty much every weapon you could th spot you would want to see is in this match. They checked them all off, and everyone put in a great effort. I did feel like... Punk had to fly two or three times and Punk, God bless him. He, every time he tries to fly or do any move that involves him jumping or anything like he, he is the lead balloon of wrestlers in terms of jumping. He always just falls like straight down. Like if Pac, you know, when he first worked on the Indies, they always said he was the guy that gravity forgot. I, I probably used this line before, but CM Punk is the guy that gravity remembered. He, he just always <laughs> has zero hang time. But hey, that made that made that landing on that ladder even more of a thud. Yeah, he jumps and he just falls straight onto it. And I think like one of the live reports that was sent to the Observer or something said, um, CM Punk hit a frog splash on the ladder, and I was like, that was not that that was maybe not even a tadpole splash. That was CM Punk jumping and barely making it and just landing chest first on the guy. But it was, yeah, it made it in some ways more impressive. One thing I think I was struck by watching this match and you touched on it was it is crazy how our like we knew concussions were a bad thing in 2004. Let's not kid ourselves, but it is crazy. Like, I don't think anyone will be allowed to get away with what they did in this match in 2020, which is only 16 years later. But like, like you said, partially because like they were just so close to each other. You know what I mean? They were standing near each other and stuff. They would not be allowed to get away with that in 2020. <laughs> There was not any frequent scrubbing down of the surfaces of this match every five minutes, which I presume is coming to real wrestling in the next couple months. But uh, no, like like that sequence you described, it is basically there is a sequence in this match 
that is basically a new Japan fighting spirit. We're all going to dare each other to hit each other as hard as we can, and we're not going to fight back, except it's with chair shots to the head. It's it's and, Mike Awesome, Masato Tanaka, basically. Yeah, and it is... But they're but like times two because there's like four guys. <laughs> Even if there were a few wrestlers in wrestling these days that would still attempt that, like there would be in if, if any prominent promotion did what they did in this match, there would be like a week long online discourse about should this have been done? They should never allow this to happen. Should this company not, be could should this company be shut down by the government? Right? Like that's yeah, what they would be not, saying. I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying no, not at all. Sixteen years ago. You could have done – you did this and I don't remember there being like any outcry. It was just like – No, I'm sure people were like, uh, that's not cool. But I don't think anyone was like losing sleep over it except possibly these guys because of their concussions. <laughs> or maybe they got extra sleep, the wrong kind of sleep. But uh, um, yeah, just – and then the chair throwing spot. And I felt so bad for the poor referee. And also you have to remember – because the referee during this, as the chairs are being thrown, he's still in the ring. Everyone else is at ringside and he's just ducking and covering his head. And I have to remember the poor cameramen because they have to stay focused on the ring. And you, so their back is turned to the chairs. And it would just take just one person who doesn't do a good job of throwing their chair to really ruin somebody's night. And – I always feel bad in spots like that for the staff, but yeah, this is, this is the one great match on the show. And even though I think the show had really good wrestling up and down, it needed something that was truly felt special and memorable. I think this is the one match that gives it that it ends a feud. And I guess the one last thing I would say to describe this match is I think if you don't like these hardcore weapons brawls match, this is not a match that will convert you to liking it. But if you have any sort of taste for these kinds of matches at all, I think you'll really love this match. Yeah, and I think if you can put the the chair shots out of your head because, like, you know what? They happened. It sucks, but that's the way wrestling was back then. Um, You know, I would probably, since we're doing more star ratings these days, I'd probably go four and a half for this match. I thought this was really one of the better brawls in ROH history. I, I agree. I think that's a, I, that's would probably be my rating too. And it's yeah, and it, it's a really interesting feather in a CM Punk CM Punk's cap because I don't know if some people. I think if you were just a WWE fan of him, you might not realize he has a, like a match like this in his resume. You know where he's taking full force. I mean, full unprotected chair shots to the head and doing, I mean, credit to him. He's, he and Moff were the guys doing the majority of, I think all of the barbed wire spots in this match, you know, punk was really for, even though he was the biggest name in this match, even at this point in his career, he was game for everything. He was doing just as much, if not more as everyone else here. Absolutely. And, um, I wouldn't even say he was necessarily the standout performer. I mean, he was great, but I thought they were all really good. Um, no, yeah, I, in some ways, in some ways, Moth might have been the standout performer, honestly. Yeah, I, I think everyone looked great. And in some weird ways, like one of the pr- most prominent – this has to be one of the most prominent matches Ace Steel ever had in Ring of Honor. I mean, he's winning a giant main event, and he gets the pinfall. That's the other thing that was a little weird. Like Ace Steel's been in Ring of Honor before this, but it was kind of interesting where at the end of this huge feud, this crazy war of a gimmick match, it's Ace Steel getting the win. Like not Colt. Not Punk. It's Ace Steel. I think they had a lot of faith in Ace and Big Brawls. I mean, if you remember, he was in the Cage of Death, too. And he was even less involved in ROH at that point than he was here. So, like, they they, they get him involved um, for certain things that I guess they have a lot of faith in him with. 
Yeah, and he yeah he did good too. He fit right in with everyone else, and uh, so yeah, great match. And then shortly after the match ends, Generation Next hits the ring and attacks the Saints. Uh, Colt eventually runs in to try and make the save, but he gets beaten down as well. Then the crowd chants for Ricky Stebo, and Ricky quickly answers their chants. He runs out very shortly after that. He gets beaten down too by Generation Next who proceeds to then tape Steamboat by the arms to the ropes. Gen Next, Gen Next look like such a bunch of frat boys in this, in this segment, the way they're dressed, like they're sneakers. Like they just like, like they just look like a frat. Like they just like enter the ring to beat up these wrestlers. <laughs> and three of the four of them were, did you notice were wearing disposable white gloves and Gabe even calls it like, why are they wearing white gloves? They were ahead of their, they were ahead of their time when it came to handling blood. Exactly. But yet, like Gabe asked that on commentary and you never get an answer. I presume it was because they didn't want to deal with blood. But it was weird because Roderick Strong was the only guy he wasn't wearing them. Some of them were only wearing, I think, one glove. But I I have to think that's why they were scared of blood. But um, they taped. So like I said, they taped Steamboat to the ring ropes by the arms. I, I I do wish they would have found a better position to tape Steamboat by because basically they tape Steamboat to the ropes where he's standing up and his arms are outstretched. So, so basically like a crucifix pose. And so for the extended beatdown that follows, it basically looks like Ricky Steamboat is just lounging and relaxing and watching all these guys he likes getting the crap beat out of him. Like I would have tried to find just, I don't know, a better position to put his arms. It's it's kind of a weird visual. Isn't isn't that didn't they say that's kind of why Andre the Giant used to get his arms tied up in the ropes so he could like rest for a little while? <laughs> it looks it's a very comfortable looking yeah. um forced witnessing of a beatdown. Yeah. Uh Shelly gets on the mic and he says Steamboat has a front row seat to the demise of the Second City Saints. Shelly says the Saints' time has come and gone and Generation Next is the future. They keep beating down the Saints. Different Saints keep making little comeback attempts, but they all always only last a few seconds before Gen Next overwhelms them. Um, let me just see there. Generation Next eventually gets tired of beating everyone down and they start to leave as a loud you suck dick chant starts in the crowd. And this is, I love this, Matt. The very last thing on this show that we see in here is we hear a fan in the crowd telling Alex Shelley to go back to TNA and kiss Jeff Jarrett's ass. And Shelley just calmly says, will do. And we <laughs> immediately cut to black. That's the way the show ends. Like perfect timing. Just show like, okay, end of show. So Shelly, um, Shelly was great. Yeah. So that is the end <laughs> of uh, death before dishonor Two, part two, the double deuce. Uh, uh, Matt, what did you think about the show as a whole? I thought it was a good show. I think there were some matches that disappointed me more than they disappointed you, but I generally agree about the consistency of quality. And this match had, I mean, this show had the match of the weekend by far, I thought, in the main event. That said, I probably liked top to bottom had more matches that jazzed me up in night one a little bit more. So I probably liked night one a little bit more top to bottom, but I don't think you can go wrong with this weekend. It's super solid. And this this show had a just a fantastic, memorable, legendary Ring of Honor brawl. So good, good, definitely a thumbs up show. Uh, I agree that some matches on this show were disappointing. I, I actually think I would put this as the best night of the double shot, even though both nights were really good. Because even though some of the matches were disappointing, I just think this is one of the most consistent cards Ring of Honor has put up. To op to bomb to this point in their history, like everything is is good, and then you got the one great match to top it off. And even though some of the good matches on paper you would expect them to be great, I just think 
this is the I think this is the card where it really shows off how far Ring of Honor's come in terms of their depth. Like, and a lot of people weren't even on this show, right? Like, no Embassy, no Special K, no Carnage Crew people. No so, Danielson. Yeah, no, no, uh, no American Dragon. I mean, maybe you could argue that besides Danielson, a lot of like the fat was trimmed off of this lineup of people. Um, but still, you know, like the point is, like as good as this roster was, they still have some more tricks up their sleeve. Nigel McGuinness wasn't yeah. on this show, so like it shows you're right. There's a lot of depth in this roster, and, and I, I think it's interesting because in 2002, 2003, obviously there's a lot of stuff we liked, but I think one thing we kind of agreed on going back is we felt like almost with an exception here, there almost all the major main events and the the great matches people remember from Ring of Honor are still great 15, 16 years later. But the things that didn't hold up as well is a lot of the undercards people thought were great. That kind of doesn't hold up. And if there's been a problem with Ring of Honor, looking back, it was their depth. And I feel like this is the time on this show where I was just like, they've got so many great guys at this point. Like, it's just an embarrassment of riches. Like, that they could just, you know, the the first six months of Ring of Honor was carried by low-key and um, Danielson and uh, Daniels. And now Loki is just can be in a throwaway match in the middle of the card. Like that's how that's how much depth they have. You know, Doug Williams is a special attraction, but he's just in one of a whole bunch of matches. You know, even though he's got a title, it's fairly early in the card. You know, it's just they've got such depth at this point. It's crazy. This is really mid two thousand four, especially. And it's it's really impressive when you know going back we did the Feinstein episode and stuff, and so many of the newsletters were saying. Like the big problem with Ring of Honor without AJ Styles and uh, and um, Christopher Daniels is I don't know how they're going to deal with the depth, you know. And it's like their depth a few months later is stronger than literally it had ever been. Well, they took a gamble on Generation Next and it was a huge success. It paid off so well. It was one of the best things they ever did. It worked out amazingly well, the whole Generation yeah. Next thing. Um, also, this show, like really they trimmed the fat. Like there was like, like I said earlier, like it's just a very – compact show not a lot of like throwaway bullshit um that said i don't think that's true forever like i know there are shows later in in 2004 that are like endless and super long but this is a show that really shows what the roh can be when they just make it like short or like not even short but like just to the point um just the good stuff you know what i mean that's kind of what these shows are it's just the good stuff I guess to give one more criticism, which kind of sums up what we've talked about on this show, there was a lot of interference and heel beatdowns, which I don't mind, but there was a lot on one show. Like, it felt like maybe you could have spread this out a bit more to have two heel stables, you know, you end it on a big heel angle, you have uh, multiple interference finishes, like at least two or three, you have just, it, it was quite a bit on for one show, but still... I really enjoyed this show. Yeah, if, if, if this weekend was not a box office success, it was definitely an artistic success altogether. Definitely. So that brings us to the end of the show, and we have stuff to plug as usual. If you want to contact us, that's through the years at gmail.com is the email address, T-H-R-O-H. Uh, if you want to get to know us on Twitter, at Trevor Dame on Twitter or at Mayor MGF on Twitter. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only message board, which I check sporadically these days. If anyone wants to post there, do give a comment. 
And uh, we we mentioned at the top, well, we're always appearing on podcasts, seems like, these days with, in the pandemic. So there's lots of other stuff to listen to with us talking about wrestling. And next time on the show, we will be covering Testing the Limit, which is known for one big thing. It happened on August 7th, my 20th birthday. Well, okay, <laughs> two things. It also happened uh, It also happened to have a 70-plus minute Austin Aries-Brian Danielson match that was originally planned to go for three hours. So that's next on Through the Years. Matt, do you have anything else to say? You know... Wash your hands, social distancing, wear a mask when you go into public places. It's, you know, it's just to protect everyone around you. You know what I mean. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. I, uh, I'm glad we're getting to some really good stuff now. Hopefully we'll be back sooner with the next show, too. I can't imagine that the quarantine's ending anytime soon, so <laughs> I imagine that we will be. Uh, yeah, so thanks again for everyone listening. You know, be safe. Like Matt said, those are all great tips. And, uh... You know, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Wash your goddamn hands. <laughs>